Hello, stranger. Welcome to the Lineup Podcast. If you're a fan of mystery, you've come to the right place. With each episode, we unearth a strange case from around the world. Today's episode, we join Cheryl Eddy from io9 True Crime, who shines a light on two bizarre cases that prove life's dark side is stranger than fiction. One of the reasons I'm so fascinated by true crime is because it's so unpredictable. Even lesser known cases are just filled with all kinds of weird details, just strange things that happen and you're like, what? And they often take these incredible twists and turns, just shaking up the narrative in ways that would seem just unbelievable if you were reading it in a fiction book. But these are real stories from real life and they all really happened. I'd like to share a couple of examples of this. The first is a pretty amazing story. Imagine enduring 25 years of being told that when you were two, you caused the death of your four-month-old brother. Conversely, imagine being the sort of person low enough to frame a toddler for murder. In 1971, a tragedy and its prolonged aftermath would go on to shape more than one life. Tracy Rame grew up hearing the story of how she'd killed her infant half-brother. Matthew Golder, by tossing him out of his crib. She grew up hearing this story, which is incredible. It was ruled an accident, of course, and Rain was too young to remember the event at the time. But as she grew older, she was haunted by the knowledge that she wasn't capable of committing the horrible act she'd been accused of. As People Magazine reports, it was a terrible burden to bear. Her parents had told her that four-month-old Matthew had crawled from his crib in their Chambly, Georgia apartment, and fallen to the floor. When she pressed for details as a child, Rame recalls her mother blurting, You don't want to know. His head looked like someone put their fist through a watermelon. It was an image Rame couldn't forget, and she knew in her gut that her brother didn't just fall. But she wasn't prepared for her maternal grandmother, Ann Davidson's revelation in 1992. You did it. You were playing in the crib, and he fell out. It was an accident. We've always known that. After an understandably rough childhood, Tracy graduated high school, joined the army, and gained self-confidence that was bolstered even further when she met her future husband. He happened to have an uncle in the FBI who offered her guidance in her fight to clear her name, and her persistence paid off. In 1997, after years of back and forth with Tracy and Matthew's mother, the little boy's body was exhumed for forensic study. With a new autopsy, the truth was finally revealed. Her short-tempered stepfather, Jan Barry Sandlin, had killed the baby with blows to the head and then plopped Tracy into his crib 
after the fact to make it look like she'd done it. The prosecutor who took on Sandlin recalled of Tracy, all her life she was told she was responsible for her brother's death. When she asked questions, she didn't get a lot of details. Tracy just wasn't comfortable with that. This really is a lifelong quest for her. Sandlin proved easy to track down. Turns out he was doing time for armed robbery in Florida, though he denied any involvement in Matthew's death. But the evidence against him was too strong, and he was convicted of the decades-old crime. And Tracy, at that time, age 27, and the mother of two young children herself, was finally vindicated after a life spent wrongfully accused. another story that's just stranger than fiction. In 1960, it seemed like the perfect crime, and it also seemed like the best solution to a pressing financial dilemma. Snatch a wealthy, middle-aged beer company heir, demand $500,000 ransom, which is about $4 million today, collect the money, release your kidnapped victim, and just fade on back into obscurity. But, as often goes with so-called perfect crimes, the kidnapping of Adolf Coors III did not go as planned. Coors was the grandson of the famed brewery's founder and its reigning chairman. He barely had time to realize he was about to be kidnapped before something went terribly awry. Though the man who targeted him, Joseph Corbett Jr., had stalked him for four years leading up to the crime, it still wasn't enough to ensure a smooth takedown. The would-be kidnapping happened one cold morning in February 1960, on a Colorado bridge, as Coors was driving to work. Now, Corbett had been living under the name Walter Osborne, since escaping the minimum security prison where he was doing time for a murder he'd confessed to, claiming self-defense. He approached Coors's car. A struggle ensued, and Coors was shot twice at close range. Left behind at the crime scene were Coors's car, hat, and glasses, as well as a blood-splattered bridge railing. Just over a week later, a car matching the description of a vehicle that had been seen lurking around the Coors family property was found ablaze in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Despite the distance from Colorado, and the fact that the car had begun to burn, it yielded valuable evidence tying it to the crime, including its serial number, which was traced to Corbett. Around the same time Coors's body was found abandoned in a rural dump, Investigators realized that Corbett had recently purchased a typewriter of the exact kind that had been used to write the note demanding $500,000 from Coors's widow. It was pretty clear they had their man. But where was he? A massive manhunt ensued. On March 30th, 1960, Corbett, already an escaped murderer and now wanted for another murder, became the 127th person to have his name added to the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list. Though he was able to make a go of it for a few more months, his notoriety was his undoing. Here's what the FBI had to say about it. Corbett was apprehended in Vancouver, British Columbia by Canadian police after two Canadian citizens recognized Corbett from a November 1960 Reader's Digest article. As the Denver Post recounts, the fugitive went down without a fight. Now, prefacing this by saying that Corbett was a Fulbright scholar at the time of his first murder, and he had a genius-level IQ. Okay, here's what the Denver Post said. 
Two detectives and an FBI agent closed in on the Maxine Hotel in Vancouver, British Columbia, where the landlady described a man believed to be Corbett staying in a room under the name Thomas C. Wainwright. They had picked up Corbett's trail days earlier in Toronto, where they discovered an apartment he had rented and possessions he had left behind, including chains, padlocks, and a paperback copy of Robert Travers' book, Anatomy of a Murder. Now they knocked on the door, and when Corbett cracked it, they forced their way in. He was tried and convicted without testifying on his own behalf, though his life sentence came with the possibility of parole, which he eventually got in 1980, based in no small part on the fact that he was apparently a model prisoner. He lived a quiet life thereafter, though he never admitted to killing Coors. In 2009, he was found dead by self-inflicted gunshot wound in the small apartment he'd occupied for 25 years, just 10 miles from the bridge where Coors had been ambushed. He was 80 years old. Joining us now is Cheryl Eddy from IO9's True Crime. Cheryl Eddy, thanks for joining us. Thanks today. for having me. It's great to talk with you. Thank you for your stories. Uh, I have quite a few questions I'd like to discuss with you. But first, I just want to introduce anyone in our audience who isn't familiar with IO9's True Crime site. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background of the page itself, how it started, and what it's up to now? Okay. Well, IO9 is the tagline for the, the blog itself is we come from the future. So it's a blog about science and futurism, um, which is not really true crime. And I think sometimes people have questions as to why there's a true crime subside on the blog. Um, we do have other subsites. Um, there's one about like space travel. It's called Earth and Space. So she talks about geology as well. But um, kind of when I came aboard IO9, um, I don't really have a science background. And we have, um, you know, a lot of writers who are already extremely well-versed in sort of the pop culture that io covers, like comic books and superhero movies. Um, and they kind of brought me in to just talk about weird stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Moving back in time, um, for um, almost 15 years, I worked for the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which was one of the oldest alternative weekly newspapers in all of America. And... Um, that was basically my first job. I mean, I was an intern there, and then I worked my way up, and I was like a movie critic there for a long time. And then, unfortunately, like many newspapers, it ended up closing um, almost exactly a year ago. So I made the move to blogging, and um, I was sort of, I knew Annalie Newitz and Charlie Jane Enders, who are behind like io9 and Gizmodo, and so they brought me in to sort of fill that hole of like weird. I don't know, I wrote about like Bigfoot and like the Zodiac Killer and stuff like that. And so um, I just kind of was more drawn to these true crime stories, which is something that I've always enjoyed um, reading just on my own, for my own jollies. <laughs> okay. Um, I was always a horror well, that was, movie fan. That was my next yeah. question is, is where this personal interest came from. Uh, obviously, it's your profession, but I'm curious where you came, where you came from as just as a reader yeah. and writer, where, mm -hmm. you, where your interest lies. Um. Well, I, I was saying I, I loved horror movies like growing up, and I actually have a master's in cinema studies, and my thesis was on slasher movies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the college really loved that. But, uh, um, yeah, they were, at the time they were like, you'll never use your degree to like write about horror movies. And then I was like at The Guardian writing horror movie reviews for years and years. Oh, that's great. And I guess there's a natural like 
not to use the perfect word, but like bleed through into like true crime. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I was just always one of those kids who would read those like paperback, like dusty paperbacks with like the section in the middle with like the black and white photos of like crime scenes, you know, like Helter Skelter and books like that. Right. So I have a huge collection of those. So getting to write about that stuff has been really awesome, although sometimes scary. <laughs> And I want to talk about that more, uh, but uh, I think what is so strong about your work uh, with io9 and uh, both your true crime stories and otherwise is a sense of in-depth reporting and research. Many mm-hmm. of these cases, they feel plucked right out of some dusty police department filing cabinet. And I'm thinking of the story you shared with us previously, the Tracy Rame case. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's harrowing, but it's also this this deeply personal family drama Mm -hmm. at the same time. And I'm curious how you unearth these stories that you write about, where you find them, and then what challenges you face when uh, going through and verifying the facts. Many of these cases are historical, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm sure many of the the items you would use to corroborate evidence is is not at your immediate disposal. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely finding a, a primary source, like a newspaper from the time, or I think the Tracy Rame case, there was maybe like a People magazine had covered it, like mm. when it happened in the 80s. Um, and now that we have everything online, it is, it's a lot easier. I mean, I'm not really like going into the stacks and like looking at microfiche, which I'm sure people would have done 10 or 20 years ago to find these kind of stories. But yeah, it's a lot of just like searching newspapers that are online that were from the time. And they go back pretty far if you know where to look which is always the best place to find. And just the way people would cover like crime news back then, it's always like the best way to pull out like a juicy bit of um, description or like just the way they used to write back then. So different mm. from the way we do now. So I like to sort of put that in for flavor. What are the, what are the differences that you notice out of curiosity between older approaches um, to crime writing versus more modern? Let me see if I can think of a good example. Um, There was a case I wrote about. I didn't talk about it on the podcast, but you can find it on the blog. Um, And it was a teenage girl and her boyfriend who had um, killed the the girl's mother. And it it was sort of like, did the boyfriend do it? Did the girlfriend? They described the girl like they they described her as having like a feline mask that never changed expression. Like just, (laughs) just a very like purple almost but like yeah it's very vivid yeah Um, there's a poetry to it a lot of the stuff i find it just it comes from looking through photo archives like you'll just see a photo and be like wow that person like sitting in a courtroom looks they just have an expression on their face that draws you in and pretty much every like case that i've found that seems interesting like once you start digging you're like oh my gosh and then that happened like so many crazy details come up and like or there'll be like an epilogue as to like what the person did after that's just crazy or I don't know. I just find that there's always something unbelievable that happens that just actually really did happen. Like this is what I said in the, right. when I was reading the stories, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. And uh, at times I can only imagine quite grim. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as, as you touched on earlier, there are benefits, there are positives, there's a sense of exploration and discovery in your line of work. But I am also guessing there are dark days in what you do. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, uh, you know, it's particularly the Coors case. Uh, it, it begins bleakly and it ends bleakly. Mm-hmm. There is very little uh, sunshine to that story. I'm curious, uh, the personal drawbacks to writing about true crime for a living, if there's anything you encounter which, 
which can wear you down at times. Um, well, I do rejoice when I find those stories where the somebody survives and something good comes out of it. Like, um, I did a, a super list, which is like a post that we do on um, io9, where it's like a list of various things under the same topic. And it was like people who survived and like were, you know, captured by a serial killer, but then were able to survive and like moved on. And like, so I, I do like those, but not often do we find those. Like it's usually like five bodies in a ditch. Like, <laughs> um, oh, and like, like I was saying earlier, like I, I was a horror movie fan my entire life. I've watched like, you know, cannibal Holocaust like 10 times. Like I've watched the most grim, like fictional things, but, yeah. um, Honestly, like since I've been doing true crime, I have had some nightmares. <laughs> like yeah. I've woken up a few times and been like, oh, like what, what, uh, what, what was that in my head? And my boyfriend's like, well, you know, all day you like think about terrible things <laughs> happening to people. And I'm like, I didn't really make that connection, but it's possible. Huh. I don't know. So, huh. yeah. <laughs> Do you have uh, any kind of uh, sort of approaches to detoxification to kind of wash your brain clean? Um, I will say the addition to all of Adult Swim on Hulu has okay. been really great. <laughs> so that just helps. A little levity yeah. in the situation yeah. at the end of the day. Huh. Well, at, at the same time, I'm wondering if there are... Uh, positive uh, consequences to your work. Uh, obviously, it's being published and you're able to to share these stories that might not otherwise have been known by most people. The mm -hmm. two that you shared today, for instance, are great examples. Uh, but I'm wondering, it, it, are, are people reaching out and using your stories as a bedrock for further research? Are you in contact with any of the more recent cases and the people involved in them? Does anything like that come back to you after you yourself have written a story about these cases? Um, so far I haven't talked to anyone who I've like written about. A lot of the cases are people that are no longer living. So, right. yeah. um, but I have talked to a lot of like people who write true crime books, which has been okay. really interesting. Um, I really like doing interviews. You know, you guys are turning the tables on me today, but, um, <laughs> I like talking to people who, who write about crimes like as, mm. um, I have a, I just talked to a guy, um, last week who, wrote a book and it was just interesting to talk to him because he also wrote novels. And so we talked not just about crime stuff, but just about writing and sort of how you get inspired. So with that person, you're talking to him about uh, the, the craft of writing. Is that, is that partially what drives that conversation? First and foremost, it's just sort of being fascinated by true crime, but then mm. um, everybody who writes about true crime is different. Like some people used to be police or some people were investigative journalists and then some people are also novelists, which right. write completely unrelated things. So it's very interesting to see like who's yeah. drawn to it. Do you and do you have your own origin story? Have you ever uh, traced back this fascination to a particular moment uh, in in your growth as a reader and a writer? Um, that is a good question. I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guess, didn't mean to um, surprise you on that. Well. I remember like being a little kid and watching a TV miniseries about Ted Bundy that starred huh. um, Mark Harmon, which right. Stranger yeah. Beside Me. That. Yeah, and it was yeah. based on the book by Anne Rule, which I mm -hmm. believe I immediately went to go find, even though I was probably not the right, I was not age appropriate. <laughs> um, although, I don't know, I was born in 75, so that was okay. sort of the Bundy era. I don't know. And yeah. I was born in Seattle, so that was kind of okay. in the air, but. Um, yeah. That was definitely one of the first books I read. And then I got into like Manson, you know, being a rebellious like teenager wanting to read like Helter Skelter and all those books. Um, 
I think just being curious about things that maybe weren't taught in school and maybe darker side of life kind of things and just being um, interested in horror movies and then sort of trying to figure out like what's behind those horror movies, like what is the real side of those stories. Okay. And uh, I can only presume that the research is, is uh, tremendously gratifying for you as well. Digging into these historical cases, uncovering something, shining a spotlight on it, uh, and uh, sharing it with the world has to, has to be nice at the end of the day. Sometimes, I mean, we do, do get the occasional comments where, like, you'll write about, like, some gruesome case and, like, somebody will leave a comment that's just like, well, I'm going back to bed. Happy Friday. <laughs> <laughs> But then some people do write nice comments that are like, you know, I find this stuff just as fascinating. Thank you for writing about it. Hmm. But um, most people have been pretty supportive. <laughs> Great. Well, Cheryl, Eddie, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Cheryl, Eddie is the editor of io9 True Crime, a popular site that covers everything from active investigations and infamous historical cases to the latest in crime-related books, film, and television. Get in on the mystery at truecrime.io9.com. The Lineup Podcast is written and produced by the Lineup staff and myself, Matthew Thompson. Special thanks to Cheryl Eddy, Andrew Kohler, and our partners in crime at Open Road Media. Our audio producer is Chai Dingari. Background music is by Audioblocks. And our theme music is by Absofacto at absofacto.com. For more information on the stories we present, visit our website, thelineup.com. That's the-line-up.com where murder and mayhem is delivered daily. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well, which brings you five mysteries to your inbox every week. This is Matthew, and that does it for me. Until next time, keep it weird.